Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by entering into prayer together at this time. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you once again for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, that when we fell as a human race, that you did not leave us in spiritual death, but instead you gave us your Son, Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross and died for our sins, and you he was buried, and on the third day, you raised, raised him from the dead, Father. We want to thank you so much also that salvation is so simple, that it's just a matter of hearing that good news about Jesus Christ and believing it. Father, today we also want to remember the sacrifices of military men and women and those who have died in combat. We just pray, Father, that you would continue to protect and bless our country, and that you would have the hearts of the fathers turned and have the Lord, have the Lord you and your son, Jesus Christ, be lifted up more and more in this country again. And Father, we also ask that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct everything that will be going on here in our, in our service, our worship today. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, hello again, everybody. Great to see all those smiling faces out there on a Sunday morning. All right, just a couple of announcements before we get started this morning with the message. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of June. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together then. Every month we feature a different missionary organization that we support, and this month we've been uh, learning again or hearing again or thinking about the basic training Bible ministries. And their mission includes evangelism as well as the training of pastors and of workers in the remote regions of the world. They've been to several continents and they have a presence, um, a permanent presence in various locations as well. They also teach and build up uh, pastors and evangelists here in the United States. Their approach is to use evangelism, the gospel, and then preach that, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they edify, they build up by teaching the word of God to the new believers so that they get to the point where they can be equipped to service. And each one of us has a different gift that we are to develop and use to build up and edify the church with one another through love. So um, please pray and support Basic Training Bible Ministries. That's their website, www.basictraining.org. www.basictraining.org. And I ask you again today to please keep Cheryl Jarvis in prayer as she continues to grieve the loss of her son, Ian. Please keep her in prayer. Okay, let's begin the message today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 16, and the title is, Be Imitators of Me. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Be Imitators of Me. Please turn now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 14, and we'll begin by reading that passage. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I do not write these things to shame you, Paul writes to the Corinthians, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. 
Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out. Not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So this morning we begin in verse 14. But as we've been studying, back before verse 14, in fact, from the first chapter all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, when Paul was dealing with the problems, and there'll be more as we go forward in this letter, but in the beginning he's dealing with the divisions in the church. That's the main thing. And how that was, was the reason for that was their immaturity and their arrogance. And when he was dealing with those things, he didn't pull any punches. He told it like it was. However, starting in verse 14, Paul changes his tone abruptly. Whereas before, he was biting and sarcastic. I don't know why this isn't working. Probably because it's off. Yeah. I'm a little technically challenged. There it goes. So, So up until verse 14, he was biting and sarcastic. Especially where we were last week. Um, you saw how sarcastic he was, saying things that were not true in order to get their attention. All right, so it's things that they thought were true about themselves, but really weren't. Remember that we saw that they were actually delusional in how great they thought they were, when in reality they were still children in the Lord. Well, fatherly love, and that's what he's doing now, he's, sh- he's shifting from being sarcastic to becoming fatherly and loving. Because he always is fatherly and loving. But he had to use that sarcasm, that critique, in order to get their attention and to warn them. And isn't it true that fatherly love at times is gentle, but it also includes discipline when needed. But here in verses 14 to 21, we don't get very much teaching. Instead, Paul is admonishing the saints. What does admonish mean? It means to warn them. There were things that he needed to warn them about their attitudes, their behavior, who they were hanging around with, and he, that's throughout the letter. And, and he also is warning them to accept him. He says, listen, you need to accept me as the spiritual father I am, because then you will imitate me, and you'll understand the unique role that the Lord has placed me in your life for. And he also says, exhort the saints, he's exhorting the saints to imitate him by adopting his way of life. You've got to remember, these were new Christians. There was no Bible, or no, there was a Bible, no New Testament yet. And Paul had left them. And so if you can imagine that, when they had all of these strong pulls back into what their life was like when they were unbelievers, the pagan life, the religion, the debauchery, all of that stuff, and then they hear the gospel and they're well taught, but then Paul leaves. And there they are trying to figure this out, you know. And so Paul understands that. And what does he do? And we'll see more of this. He basically says, listen, Learn about how I live the Christian way of life. And do likewise. See, we all need role models. We don't, we don't wake up and then all of a sudden we know how to do everything in the Christian life. I've been a Christian for a long time and I still don't know everything about how to live this life. It's a lifetime of learning. It's a lifetime of doing things, failing, relying on the Lord, relying on His grace and His mercy, having Him bring you to something you may have read 20, 30, 50 times, but for the first time your eyes are really open to what it means because you need it in your life. 
And that was their situation too. So he gives himself, and as we'll see, also his faithful child, Timothy, to help them have role models in which they can look, to which they can look to understand how do, we, how do we do this Christian life? So please turn, its purpose has not been to make them feel ashamed of themselves. Look again at verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you. Do not but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see, here, he's saying, listen, I know that was tough, what I, what, I, what I taught you before and how I pointed things out to you, but that wasn't to shame you. I hope you're not feeling ashamed today. I hope rather that you take it for what it is, which is a warning to my beloved children. And he brings again that fatherly tone of love. For if you would have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. His purpose has not been to make them feel ashamed of themselves. He wrote what he did to warn them before they rushed headlong into disaster. They were, after all, his beloved children in the Lord. Please turn to Ephesians 6, 4. Ephesians 6, 4. To see how fathers are called to deal with their children, to behave toward their children. Ephesians 6, 4. And remember, he was their father because they they were born again by means of the gospel that he preached to them. And while there are many guardians that they're going to have in their lives as Christians, elders and other leaders and other teachers and so forth, there's only one father. And of course, that's the father in heaven. But Paul was using an analogy to say, listen, God has given me to you to be your spiritual father, the one that you can look up to, the one that you can imitate. Look at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Can I get an amen out there from any of the young people? Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice, what do fathers do? They bring their sons and daughters up in the discipline, the training the correction and instruction of the Lord. That's the Father's duty. And yes, there are other things, obviously, that we fathers do. But we can't, we have to do this as Christian fathers. And Paul understood this principle. Well, he, he wrote Ephesians 6, 4, though he hadn't written it yet when he wrote Corinthians. But he understood this principle, that there were two things that he had to be doing with the Corinthians. He had to be disciplining them. And boy, is he going to do this in this letter. We've already seen some of that. And we'll see, we start this today in verse 21, but also to instruct them. You know, yes, there are times when we have to cr- criticize and discipline our children, but what they desperately need, and you've heard me say this before, are role models. Okay, I get I did it wrong. I, I understand that. You know, I, I, you punished me for that and I didn't like it. But now, Dad, tell me how to do it right. Show me how to do it right. You see, that's part of being a father, too. All right. So, and by the way, that's part of what leaders do. We want fathers are to call. Good fathers warn their children. We discipline them if necessary, if necessary, but before they do something that will really harm them. That's the purpose, after all. It's not that we are to get pleasure out of it or feel, you know, how high and mighty we are that we can do that to our kids, or, or worse, Parents that are, when they're angry, they'll turn and discipline their children. 
Rather, that, that'll confuse them and, and, and make them bitter. And as Paul says here in Ephesians 6, 4, provoke them to anger. Sometimes when children are angry, it's because of the father. And we're not supposed to do that. See, that's a tough job. We've got to balance a lot of things to make sure that on the one hand, we're disciplining them, but for the purpose of warning them before they do something that'll really hurt them. That's why we discipline our, our, our children. All right. And again, that's leaders do the same thing. We're going to see more about leaders today. All right. Now, even though he says here, well, back in 1 Corinthians 4.14, and you can go back there now. 1 Corinthians 4. And we saw this, that he already said that at this point, when he wrote what he did in chapters 1 through 3, and in fact, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 13, when he did all of that, his purpose was not to shame them. But don't get the wrong idea. Don't think that because he writes that there, that means there's no, there's no function or purpose for shame in the Christian life. Because there is. There is. In other passages, he will do that. Later on in this letter, he will. But the thing about it is, and this is really important too as leaders and parents, he, they, he never shames them as people. He doesn't say, you know, you're a shameful person. doesn't do that. What he does do is he, he shames their behavior. He says, I need to deal with your shameful behavior. Now, isn't that true? Don't we all do things that are shameful? You know, I mean, even all the way through our Christian life, we've continued to do that. And so there are, when the word, I don't know about you, but when the word of God points those things out to me, there's a sense of shame about it. Now, we don't want to get overboard about it and start to feel guilty and, you know, self-introspective and all of that. But there is a time where we have to realize that what we're doing is the opposite of what God wants us to do. And when we see that, there's going to be a sense of shame or regret. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so that, that make that distinction between being shamed as a person. You'll never be anything. I never, you know, all of those kind of shameful things. I, I don't want any part of you anymore. That's never what happens in God's word. That's not the Father's heartbeat. But to point out behavior and to shame that behavior is what the word of God does, and that's what Paul does later on. All right, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For if you were to have countless, by the way, the word is 10,000. For, for our translation, it would be zillions. <laughs> you would have zillions of tutors in Christ. Yet you would not have many fathers. Actually, how many fathers do you have? In this weird day, I know some people probably have two. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's design for marriage, right? You have one father. On earth, earthly father. He said, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. By the way, in verse 15, the Greek word for tutors is paedagogos. Paedagogos. Now, you see the English word tutor, and what do you think about? Teacher, right? Don't you think about a teacher? You know, somebody who's tutoring somebody. But however, that's not what the word means in the Greek, in the ancient Greek world. It literally means boy keeper. Boy keeper. Yeah, that's what the word actually means. So what was going on back then? Well, there was a man, usually a slave, all right, who conducted the boy or youth to and from school. To and from school. He oversaw the boy's conduct. He was not a teacher. 
It means someone who has responsibility for someone who needs guidance, direction. You know, today, we don't, we don't have this exactly for the most part, although you could think of, for example, Maria in The Sound of Music, if you want an analogy. You know how she was the governess and she took care. So that's kind of the analogy, though it was different. All right? But young people need guidance. They need a guardian. They need someone to keep them uh, on, on the playing field of life. And that's what the purpose of this paedagogos was. Not the instructor, but responsibility for someone who needs guidance. He carried a long cane. Always, when you look at pottery and so forth with this paedagogos, he had a long stick in his hand. Now, what does that tell you? He wasn't whittling, right? No, he was, he was a disciplinarian. Sometimes, often unfairly and arbitrary. Quite unlike what a father's supposed to do. See, we have the picture of the rod and the father, and we think that he's always wielding it over the kid and saying, you bet, what'd you say if you do that one more time? No, that is, that's not what the rod means in the Bible. Unfortunately, that's what the Pythagogos meant back then. So he was feared, he was unfair often, especially the bad ones. He punished in a, in a severe way boys who misbehaved. But he also carried their equipment to school, whether it was a writing tablet or a musical instrument. And he did sit in class and help the boys with their work. In other words, he was not the instructor. He was not the front of the classroom. But he exercised general He was watching them. General supervision over him. And he was responsible for their moral and physical well-being. That's definition from Vine in his, uh, in his uh, exegetical dictionary. Why do I say all that? Well, because the comparison that Paul's making here is not between an apostle and a teacher. That's what you might think with the word tutor. No. The comparison here is between Paul as the father and all the others as guardians. There's that distinction, not based on who's the apostle, but based on who fathered them in Christ versus anybody else later who would be their guardians. Therefore, in verse 16, I exhort you, be imitators of me. What does that mean exactly? Be imitators of me. I mean, on the one hand, it seems a little audacious and arrogant, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If you say to somebody, hey, imitate me, you know, it sounds, but that's, of course, not at all the way in which Paul meant it or that they should have taken it. It means really simply this. Remember, he's saying he's the, their father. So he's telling them, listen, observe how your father lives his life and do likewise. That's what he's saying when he says, imitate me. Observe how I live this Christian life, and then you go do the same thing. We all need role models. And by the way, Paul here is also demonstrating what it means to be a leader in any realm in life. If you're a leader, the idea isn't just that you shout out orders. You know, some fathers, some bosses, some teachers, they think that's the way it is. Uh, just a, a leader just means you get to shout out orders and deal out arbitrary punishments. That's not at all, at all, at all, at all what the Bible says. That's what a bad guy, a pedagogos, that's a tough word to say. But that's what they, bad ones did. But good leaders don't do that. Paul is saying, I'm your leader, please imitate me. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at what can we learn? What can we learn from Paul and also Jesus about leadership? About leadership. Be imitators of me. So we're going to look at seven things about what the Bible tells us 
and how Paul and Jesus modeled this when it comes to being a Christian leader. Well, the first thing, and this might be a little counterintuitive, but the first thing, the foremost thing about a good leader is that first, he's a good follower. You can't lead unless you've been a follower. You have to be on that side before you can be on this side. As Jesus said, you know, how can I entrust you with your own leadership if you haven't been faithful under somebody else's? So that's the first and foremost thing about a leader. He's a good follower of his own commanding officer. Now, in Paul's case, and in our case, who's our commanding officer? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. That's how Paul became a good leader. He did the same thing. He looked at his captain, his superior officer, Jesus Christ, and he imitated him. And he learned how he thought, and he adopted that into his way of life. So that's the first thing about being a leader. You've got to submit to the authority of the one who's over you and learn from them. That's the first thing. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Same book later on. Notice how Paul puts it this time. He's going to talk about being an imitator again, but he puts it in a different way, in a different light. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. First and foremost, a good leader is a good follower of his own commanding officer as his own authority figure. And in our case, as well as Paul's, our authority, the commanding officer, is Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Real simple verse, right? Be imitators of me. Now, he's just said that in chapter 4 where we've been. Now he says what? Just as I also am of Christ. You see it? Being a good leader of me, I mean, being an imitator of me, just as I am a great imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, please, by the way, imitator doesn't mean like a mime or somebody who mimics somebody. Get that out of your head. Or like a parrot. You know, that's not the idea at all. Again, it's to observe somebody's way of life and do likewise. You see, before Paul could ever ask the Corinthians to imitate him, he had to first imitate the Lord. He had to first observe and learn, and he got some of the most amazing revelations from Jesus Christ about Christ as the head of the body and so many other things. And so Paul first learned from the Lord how to be a leader, and then he turned around and he said, please imitate me as I have imitated Christ. That's the first thing. First and foremost, a good leader is a follower of his own commanding officer. Well, please turn back to 1 Corinthians 4.17, a few chapters back, to see the second thing. The second thing. 1 Corinthians 4.17. Yes, we'll go back to there now. Looks like pretty much people are there. All right. What's the second thing about good leaders according to the Bible? The second thing is that an excellent leader is an excellent teacher. An excellent teacher. Look at 1 Corinthians 4.17. For this reason I have said to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. There it is again. His ways, where do they come from? From Christ. And he says, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul was teaching them all how to be how to live this Christian life. We see that in nearly all of the letters of the New Testament. There's a section at the end where he then exhorts them in different ways. Right? Be kind to one another. Gentle-hearted. Forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 
He always and almost always ended his letters with a series of exhortations about how to live. Now that you've learned and sat and understood all that God has done for you in Christ, now go live that way. Walk by means of the Spirit. He does that in almost all of his letters. And here he's just saying, listen, I'm asking you to do that. I'm going to send you another role model, Timothy, and realize that I'm teaching this to every church, that you're not alone, you're not special in that regard. Please turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. An excellent leader is an excellent teacher. Colossians 1.28. He's a good follower of his commanding officer, and now he's an excellent teacher. I want you to think about this in whatever field of life you are, either are or aspire to leadership. To understand that, again, before you can lead, you have to learn to follow. And secondly, you have to be a good teacher. You have to be a good teacher. You have to remember, never ask somebody to do something that you haven't taught them to do first. It's not magic. They don't have by osmosis learn these things. They need to be taught. Paul understood that in the Christian life. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Christ, notice, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Every man he was teaching with all the wisdom that he had so that we may present every man complete in Christ. I want you to picture, if you would, uh, a commanding officer of some kind, and he's bringing all of his troops through training, rigorous training. And at the end, he's going to present his troops to his commanding officer and say, now the officer, now they're ready. Now they're ready. Okay? Well, there are times when not every one of those troops gets all the way through. But his desire is for every one of them to do that. And that's Paul, his heartbeat for everybody who ever was saved and whoever was entering into the Christian life, that they would learn from him, that they would be, take, take the criticism, take the warning seriously, so that Paul, at the judgment seat, could present everyone that was under his leadership complete in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 29, this isn't a cakewalk. For this purpose also I labor. Leaders labor. They work harder than anybody under them. Well, they should. I labor, striving, according to his power. Know where your power comes from, which mightily works within me. We'll see more of this at the end, about recognizing where your power really comes from. It doesn't, hint, it doesn't come from you. It comes from the Lord. All right, so he's an excellent teacher. The third thing about a good leader is that, I've mentioned this a couple of times, he serves as a good role model for those under his authority. First, a leader is a follower. Second, he's an excellent teacher. Third, he understands that the, the, the people under his authority, under his leadership, are looking to him. You know, isn't that true of children? We often say, you know, are they really hearing what we're saying? And the answer is no. They're watching what you're doing. That's what children do. They're excellent at that. Why do you think so many children are so great at imitating and mimicking their parents? You know, because they're always observing. Sometimes they're not listening, but they're observing. So remember that, you know, in any leadership position in life, it's, it's the life you live. It's, it's being, not being a hypocrite. It's being a true good role model for those under your authority. Please look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. I know I'm working you this morning in the Bible. The reason I want, one of the reasons, other than the fact that I love the Bible and I want to show you all the places these are, is that hopefully you're writing these down. <laughs> and so that when you go back, you know, and like, uh, like my son, for example, he's going to go to basic training in another month. And hopefully after a long, long 
time of learning, he's going to be an officer. That's the plan. And so, you know, write these down. You know, you're going to probably need them at some point, at a lot of points in your, in your career. All right, 2 Thessalonians 3. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. There it is again. Because we did not act. Notice, his example wasn't what was coming out of his mouth. It was how he acted. Follow that. Follow my example, my actions, the way I live. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Unfortunately, there are so many leaders, pastors, officers in the military, parents, who are on the one hand telling the people under their authority to live a disciplined life, but they're not living a disciplined life. And can you see how that's confusing? Can you see how that's actually a little demoralizing? If here you have this man who is very strict, or woman, very strict about your living a disciplined life, but they're not living a disciplined life. You know, they're telling you that you need to work at your, at your task every day, and then they're taking, they're taking lots of time away, and they're not working at their own tasks. See, that's, that's not a good leader. But he says, that's not what we did, Paul said. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Isn't that simple things? You know, you expect Paul, and he is at times, very lofty in what he's describing, very inspiring. But then he gets right down into the nitty-gritty, and he basically, he's saying, listen, I didn't eat anybody's bread without paying for it. You know, sometimes leaders take those those uh, privileges, you know, oh, you know, I'm the leader, I can take a little here, a little there. He didn't. It is a simple principle, is it? If you're going to eat bread, pay for it. Simple principle. It's like, you know, you go to these graduations and you hear the speakers, and a lot of times there are these lofty things like, you're going to change the world, and, you know, how about starting with, if, you, if you're going to take something, pay for it. Like maybe your college education, you know. Um, and that's a principle that goes throughout life, right? Simple things. Before you change the world, change your bedclothes. You know what I'm saying? Things like that. So in any event, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But what? Notice, this is what a leader does with labor and hardship. Labor and hardship. Labor and hardship. We kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this. You see? The Bible says, let those who preach the gospel earn their living from the gospel. But Paul said, I didn't, I didn't take that right. I have that right, but I didn't do it. Instead, I worked hard day and night. Why? Because then you'd follow my example. He understood there was more than just him being the authority and being the apostle. And they're listening to his teachings. He understood that... The, one of the really key things was that they would see him and follow their, his example. Notice, not because we don't have the right to this, but in, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Now, in the military, it, this is a very, very important principle. A good officer will never order a soldier to do something he, has, he is not willing to do and has done himself. All right. A good officer will never order a soldier to do something that he is not willing to do himself, and in fact, that he has not done himself. All right. He doesn't only give instructions about how to do something. He shows them how to do it, and he models the behavior that he's looking for from his troops. In other words, very simply, his ways match his teaching. 
And this is, by the way, a way in which you should test your leaders. Pastors, I'm not test, I don't mean testing and be, being critical and being rebellious, but just as an observation. Just look. Does his way, do his ways match his teaching? You have a right to ask that question about anybody who gets behind the pulpit and preaches. Do his ways match his teaching? All right? That's key to being a good leader. Otherwise, you know what it's called when your ways don't match your teaching? It's called being a hypocrite. That's being a hypocrite. You know, do as I say, not as I do. You know? Doesn't work. Not, not, not in terms of people following your lead. By the way, this ways matching teaching, never ordering somebody to do something that you haven't done or not willing to do yourself, that's exactly the kind of leader that Jesus Christ was. Please turn to John chapter 13, verse 12. John 13, verse 12. He did it first, and then he asked his disciples to do the same thing. He did something that was actually shocking for somebody who was the Lord and the teacher. It was shocking what he did. John chapter 13, verse 12. But he did it for the same reason that Paul did it. They didn't have to. All who would look at this would say that's beneath him, and yet he did it. Why? One reason. So that he would be a role model for the ones that he was leading. A good role model. Look at John 13, 12. So when he had washed their feet... You see, servants did that. When there were guests that were coming into the homes of the rich, then they had servants that would wash the feet of the guests that were coming in. All right. When he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments again and reclined at the table again. He said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? Probably Peter being a smart like, Yeah, you washed my feet. You know. Do you know what, you, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. So I am. If I, here's the principle. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, became as a servant to you, and I'm your Lord, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There it is. Never do, never tell somebody to do what you're not willing to do, and in fact have done yourself. By the way, washing the feet here is a gesture of love. He was saying, listen, as I, if I have stooped down until you would understand my love for you, you've got to be willing to do the same thing. Put others' needs ahead of your own at times. While he was rich, Jesus Christ, rich in heaven, yet he became poor for our sake. That's leadership. That's not what the world says leadership is all about. right? The people that are high and mighty in the world, they lord it over those who are under them. You know, you get me this, you get me that. Don't you know that I want my tea with one and a half uh, spoons of sugar. You know, some of these people on, on tour and everything, they want like certain things at certain times and the temperature of the room has to be a certain temperature and they got to have this so al dente, that's an Italian thing for the right moment when the pasta is perfect, you know. All of that, right? But that's not what, that's not what Jesus did, right? He became the servant of all. He said, listen, he said again, verse 14, if I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, there's leadership. Wash your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I'm learning how important feet are in the military. They, you know, all kidding aside. I mean, if you think about it, if, if, you, if, the, if the soldier's feet are in bad shape, how much marching can they do? None, right? 
And so that's one of the things about a leader in the military is they're always paying attention to the feet of the soldiers that are under their command, just like Jesus did. Reminded me of a story. Um, I'm a, I love college basketball. And there was a fellow by the name of Bill Walton. This is going back, young people. I know you don't know this guy. But he was a towering seven-foot redhead. He went to UCLA where the greatest basketball coach of all time, John Wooden, presided. And this guy, Bill Walton, thought, you know, he was it. You know, the moon revolved around him, right? He was just one of those guys. He was kind of a hippie. He took things casually. And he came in the first day, and his shoes weren't tied correctly. They were loose. And, and John Wooden said to him, get off the court. He's like, what? I'm, 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 come on, I'm the man. I'm Bill Walton. What do you mean get off the court? He says, sit down and tie your shoes correctly. And he looked at him funny. He says, what, are you kidding me? And he said, listen to me. He says, when you're in the fourth quarter of a close game and your shoes aren't fitting correctly, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have trouble with your feet and you're going to be unable to perform the way that you think you can. So in any event, why am I saying that? Because leaders look after these small details. They understand the importance of them. I gave you an example what you should also do as I did to you. Love one another. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, notice you are blessed if you repeat them and pontificate to others. Is that what it says at the end of verse 17? What does it say? If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Do them. It's not enough to know it. You have to do it. It's not enough to take the reservation. You have to keep the reservation. Right? How can you call me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you? Right? I mean, are people good at that, buttering up people who are in positions of authority? Oh, you're so great. You're my Lord. And then they don't do anything that they tell them to do. You know? People come to, come to church, and it's like at the end, that was the greatest message I ever heard in my life. And you never see them again, you know. It's like, wait a minute, what time out? If it really was, don't you want to come back? It's like if you went to the greatest Italian restaurant in all of Florida. Is there one, by the way? I don't know. But if you went to the greatest Italian restaurant in all of Florida, right, and at the end you're like, this is the greatest meal I ever had. And it was affordable. You don't have an excuse that you can't afford it. The greatest meal I ever, ever had. And then you're walking out and he's shaking the hands of the proprietor and said, that was marvelous. That was terrific. And then he never goes back to eat that restaurant again. Does that make any sense? No. So he says, you're blessed if you do it. If you do it. This is a Christian way of life. It's a life of doing. Now, now people hear that and they say, well, I thought it was all grace. I thought there weren't any works. Well, here's the deal. There are, there, it is all grace, and, and completely for salvation, not of works at all. By grace, through faith, lest none of us should boast, and we never should boast. But here's the thing, once we become believers in life, we're empowered. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We are made the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Why? Would you, would you adopt somebody as a child and then say, put them in a corner and say, I don't want to hear from you again and you're not going to be anything in life? Of course not. You adopt somebody or have a child because you want them to accomplish things. You want them to be like dad, be like mom. Well, what is that? It's a life of activity. It's a life where he's given us the works. He's ordained them ahead of time. 
And all we need to do is walk in them. And, and as I said so many times, we're going to do some walking in life, right? We're going to walk. The question is, what direction are we going to walk in? If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. A real leader goes into battle first at the head of his troops. And it's a simple principle. Not always, but often. Why? Well, because if you're facing a very, very harsh situation where you're outnumbered or where they have more artillery than you or whatever it might be, and you're relying, you're like, you guys have to be courageous today. Right? What's the best way to get your men to be courageous? To be courageous yourself. You don't do that by standing, you know, two miles away with your binoculars. Go get them, guys, you know. That's not leadership. Right there in the front. Right there in the front. Jesus knew the same thing. The Lord knew the same thing. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. You can write it down. Isaiah 45, 2. I will go before you. I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. So a real leader is one who would never order somebody to do something that they aren't willing to do themselves. They serve as a good role model for those under their authority. Fourth, great leaders produce other great leaders. You know, if if you want to understand how good a leader or a coach somebody is, look at how many leaders they produce, right? Again, I like sports and food, but in sports, for example, right? I know you guys are tired of hearing about my favorite football team, but too bad, right? So you have this guy by the name of Belichick, right? And on the one hand, it's like, wow, he's won this many Super Bowls, and that's good. But you know what his real legacy is going to be? It's going to be all the men who became head coaches after they were assistant coaches under him. That's the principle. Great leaders produce other great leaders. And so that's a great thing to think about. If you're, if you're in a leadership position, are you developing other leaders in your midst? Do you know how to do that? That's part of leadership, is to develop somebody who actually is a better leader than you are. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to embarrass my kid again. But I used to think I was smart and courageous. But he's smarter and more courageous than I am. And that's what we're talking about. Leadership. All right. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 1.5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Great leaders produce other great leaders. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Notice what happened with the saints in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Wait for everybody to get there. Looks like we're there. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's the way preachers ought to be, by the way. It's not just the words. The words are important. The message is important. But it's also that it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And also that it's with full conviction. I mean, can you imagine a a pastor getting up there and saying, you know what? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for our sins. He was risen from the dead. Whoever simply believes in Him has eternal life. But then then you find out later that he didn't really believe that at all. 
How much does that take away from his message when it's got no conviction in it? It takes a lot away, especially on a human level. Don't get me wrong. The words are true today, and it doesn't matter about the words being true, and you'll get the benefit of that. But isn't it demoralizing when somebody is, is telling you something and they don't have full conviction about it? Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. What kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Notice verse 6, though. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. What, what Paul is asking, remember in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as, as I imitate the Lord. Well, the Thessalonian saints did that. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What happens when those under somebody's command become imitators of them? This is what happens, verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. See, Paul couldn't be everywhere all the time. So what he wanted people to do was to learn and be trained under him so that they in turn would be good role models for other new Christians. And that's what happened with the Thessalonian saints. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. By the way, that's not only what Paul did, produce other great leaders, that's what the greatest leader of all time did. Please turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Great leaders produce other great leaders. Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. You know, Jesus Christ took His disciples through three years of training. It was teaching, but it was all his, also His example. Again and again and again. By the way, that's what the word disciple means. It means somebody who's been trained up under the Master. Okay? So by the way, a disciple first has to be a believer. Just throw this in. And then gets trained how to be a disciple. Okay? So you don't... You're not a disciple the day you're born again, let me put it that way. And also, and this is technical, but usually a disciple is there with the, with the master learning under him directly. But in any event, Luke chapter 22, 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. See, there's a good set of soldiers. They stand by the officer. Why? Because he's a great leader. Because he has sacrificed for them. Because he has never gone anywhere, told them to go anywhere where he didn't go first. You have stood by me in my trials. Notice this. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, that kingdom will be here on earth when Jesus Christ comes back again. He's been granted that kingdom. But notice this. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. Produce other leaders. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And notice this. You will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the greatest training program in history, what Jesus did for the disciples there. Greatest leadership example ever. Such, such that they were then qualified in the kingdom, which is coming, to sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, as Paul said, and I'll read this, Philippians 3.17, you have to go there. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, yes, you have a leader, but, but then you're part of a team. And that team also demonstrates what it means 
to be a Christian. And that team, of course, is the body of Christ. And when people are living in their gift, obeying and doing the things that Paul in his letters and Jesus has said for us to do, namely and most importantly, love one another, now you have a strong team. And you can look to each other, for example, and encouragement, and yes, warning at times. So he says, also those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. As we saw, and we'll see again, um, in fact, go there now, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Back to that. That's our main passage. So we'll be going back there a few times more. 1 Corinthians 4.16. So Paul's going to send the Corinthians Timothy. Timothy was a faithful one. He was a, he was a child under Paul, just like they were. But he was faithful. He had learned and was observing and had taken into his own way of life what Paul had taught him. Paul will send them Timothy so that they might observe somebody who walked according to the pattern of Paul. You know, it's like, uh, you have, have you ever been trained in ballroom dancing? I say trained loosely, very loosely, by the way. Um, so, you know, you get the, like the great, great ballroom dancers teaching you and like that, maybe they'll have a partner. And they're, they're doing everything. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I'll never be that. But then, you know, in the class, there's somebody who's been there a couple of weeks longer than you. And then you look at them and you say, oh, I can do that. So you need role models that aren't necessarily at the tip, tippy top. Where did that come from? Um, of, of the profession. You also need people who are just a little, more, a little ahead of you to also teach. That was Timothy. Therefore, verse 16, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, because I want you to imitate me ultimately, I have sent to you Timothy, who's also my beloved child, but he's also my faithful child in the Lord. And he'll be reminding you of the ways, my ways, Paul's ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. In order to assist them in learning to imitate the ways of their father, Paul sends them another one, of his beloved children like them, Timothy. He would be a role model for how, what it means to be a Christian. And then Timothy would do the same thing himself. He would pass the torch himself. He would entrust the same message. He would be strong in the grace that was in Christ. The things that he heard from Paul, he would pass on and entrust to other faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And all throughout it, he would be suffering hardship with Paul as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Timothy 2, 1-4. Fifth, a great leader is a servant of those who are in his or her charge. A servant. And that means what? He sacrifices and suffers for their sake. He sacrifices and suffers for their sake. Please turn to Colossians chapter 1, 24. Colossians 1, 24. Great leaders produce other great leaders. They also are the servant of those who are in their charge. Colossians 1.24. Don't you love all these Bible passages today? I know I'm keeping you moving. I'm going to have to skip a few to get done with this, but it's great. Colossians 1.24. Now, what does he say? I rejoice. Look at that. Colossians 1.24. I rejoice. What? I rejoice in my sufferings. Notice that. 
I rejoice in my sufferings. You see, all of us want the glory of being in charge. But how many of us are willing to suffer on behalf of those who are under my charge? That's the mark of a true leader, according to God. According to God. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Colossians 1.24. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, the team, the church, in filling up what is lacking in the church regarding Christ's afflictions. Please turn to Mark 10, 42-45. Mark 10, 42-45. A great leader is the servant of all who are under his charge. That means he sacrifices and suffers for their sake. Jesus taught the same thing. And we're going to see he lived the same way. Okay, Mark 10, 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers out there in the world, the Gentiles, lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. When was the last time we saw that modeled in the world? Not too often. But that's how we're called to be leaders in the church, are to be the servants of all. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. So if you're striving to be a leader, you better figure out how to be a great sacrificer, a great servant. Do that first. Before you're a leader, learn how to be a servant. Learn how to serve those brothers and sisters. Learn how to serve people in your family. Train yourself to be, because when you're a leader, you're supposed to be the greatest servant of all. Whoever wishes to be first, Among you shall be the slave of all. And he turns to himself. Even the Son of Man, God's Son in the flesh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He he gave the ultimate sacrifice. He died on the cross. He died. And he died as somebody who was laughed at, scoffed, thought of as nothing. He died a death that was reserved for criminals. That's how far he was willing to go as a servant for our sake. The Son of God. Six, a great leader loves his team. Loves. Love is a thing that a great leader has to have. Why? Well, you know what? If you're going to serve somebody and sacrifice them and be willing to die for them, then you better love them. (laughs) Otherwise, you won't be able to do it. All right? Love is the key. Love for country is the key to serve. Love for your children is the key to you sacrificing. So a great leader is one who loves his team. John 15, 12. Whew, we are going a lot of places today. Oh, the places you'll go. John 15, 12. Who is the greatest leader of all time? Jesus Christ. Don't be racking your, your, your history lessons to say, well, who was that, George Washington, Caesar? No, Jesus Christ is the greatest leader of all time. 
Did he love? Did he love those who were under him? Of course he did. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. What kind of love is that, Lord? Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Ask yourself a question. Who would you be willing to take a bullet for? Those are the people you love the most. Whoever that might be. If you're willing to take a bullet for your wife, then that's the person you love the most. If you're willing to take a bullet for your country, then you love your country. That's the test. It's easy to say it, isn't it? It's easy to get the Valentine's Day card. It's easy. You know, that's easy. But to be able to sacrifice and lay down your life for somebody, to put your needs on the back burner because their needs are more urgent than yours, that's love. And, And that's what a good leader has to have for those under his command or hers. By the way, a good leader loves his children, his soldiers, his his workers, to be tough on them at times. Why? Because he needs to protect them and prepare them. You know, if you can imagine that if if, uh, basic training was like one of those vacations you see on TV, you know, would they be prepared to go and die, face the enemy, face like two or three weeks where they're out in the open and in the mud. and in, No. It's only by being trained, by, by learning how to suffer themselves and having people tough on them because they love them. By to prepare them for life, prepare them for the dangers that are ahead of them. First Corinthians, go back to, I told you we'd be going back there. First Corinthians 4. We're almost done. First Corinthians 4.18. First Corinthians 4.18. Now some have become arrogant. That's a bad sign when you have, when you have people under your command. You've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with that. Some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. When the cat's away, the mice will play. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out. Wait till your father gets home. Not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. In power. Living the life. Being being all these things we've talked about this morning. It's not just words, it's power. It's how you live. It's, it's, It's being under the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, wars against the flesh. And we got to walk by means of the Spirit. That's the power. Verse 21. I love this part, though. What do you desire? You see, when, when, when you have people on your command, you figure you've got to make up your mind. You know, should I be coming with the rod or a spirit of gentleness? Oh, I don't know. Well, the fact is that they pick. They decide, right? What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Young people, those at work who are under command, if you don't like it when people come down hard on you, it's real simple. Start obeying and imitating what they're asking you to do. And then they won't come with, to you with the rod. They'll come to you with love and a spirit of gentleness. Hopefully they will. If they're a good leader, they will. He will not hesitate to discipline the arrogant and disobedient. But at the same time, 
He also knows how to be kind and gentle. And that's what he'd rather be. Seventh and finally, a noble leader realizes that he is weak. This is something that the world will never tell you. You know, if you're a leader, you always have to be strong. You have to never, you know, never flinch and all of that. Baloney. That's not what the Word of God says. Word of God says you need to get to the point where you realize that ultimately you're weak. Why? Because when you're weak, you have to rely on the one who is strong. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you understand you're weak, you have to rely on the Lord to be your strength. That's what a Christian leader comes to. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 8. A lot of people are surprised when they see this passage. You know how the, there's a slogan in Christianity? The Lord will never give you more than you can handle, right? Isn't that a, like a cliche? The Lord will never give you more than you can handle. Wrong. That is just not true. For example, look at what happened to Paul. There was a time when the Lord gave him a lot more than he could handle. And he didn't, he, he didn't do too well. He, you know, he fell apart. You might say, what? Paul, the same? He's perfect. No, he's human, just like you and I. He had to come to this point where he understood he was weak. Notice 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that why? Why did this come upon him? Why was there an affliction that was beyond what he could take and carry, beyond the strength that he had, drove him to despair? The sentence of death he put on himself. Why? So that we would not trust in ourselves. So that we would not think about it. Take this to heart. You're going to go through things that are too much. Why? To learn. To learn to stop trusting in yourself. Don't think, you know what? I'm, I'm tough enough. I can handle this. There are some things that you are not tough enough for. That you cannot handle. And I'm going to say it this way. The sooner you go through some of those things, the better. Because you know, our power, our strength such as it is, is nothing compared to the power and strength of the Lord. When you learn that no matter how weak you get, no matter what situation you are in life, no matter how much you despair and get depressed or anything else, that there is a power that overcomes all of that. And it's not you. You don't have to do it. God has it. And, he, and so the thing about it, though, is, is that if you're, you know, if you're, like, use this analogy sometimes, if you have a car, right, and there's a solar panel on the top. And, you know, that can run the car for a little while. But then sitting there also is this amazing engine. You know? And so at a certain point, the solar power is going to be gone. And then what do you have left? The engine. See, our power is like the solar panel on the car. God's power is like the engine. And the sooner we get not to, re- not to re- rely on our own power, but instead His. That's what he said, and we'll have to close here. Indeed, verse 9, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would no longer trust in ourselves. Mark that down. No longer trust in ourselves. Have no confidence in the flesh. No longer trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Have you ever, have you ever raised anybody from the dead? Have you ever felt like you were going to die? 
Uh-huh. Right? You're in some situation where you're like, it's over now. Right? Well, that's okay. You know, and even if you die, it's okay. Why? Because we have a God that raises the dead. Now, that's power. That ought to be the power that you rely on in life. Leaders more than anybody else to understand that you're ultimately weak in and of yourself, but you have the power of God at your disposal. And that means, I'll have to leave it here, that great leaders are prayer warriors. They're prayer warriors. Ultimately, they get on their knees and they pray for their troops, for their children, whoever it might be, for themselves, that the Lord may give them the courage and wisdom that they need because he's where it all comes from. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word that is alive and powerful. We thank you, Father, that uh, you have this poured out all of this great wisdom for us to learn from. We ask, as Jesus asked his disciples, though, that the Spirit would guide us and that we would actually put these things into practice, that we would take this on, that we would understand that through your power, we can become these kind of people, these kind of leaders. And we ask also, Father, that you would help us to go back again and again to your word so that we get clear once again on the truth that makes us free. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Our next service, we have a Bible study on Thursday at 7 o'clock. Hope you can join us at that time. You might wonder that, okay, it's coming, right? You're thinking right now, well, the service is almost over. Somebody's going to come around now. The usher's going to be passing that around. They're going to ask me to put money in it. You know, it goes, wrong. That's, we don't do that. All right. Our policy is, is that since God has given freely to us, then we give freely. We just, we don't have a price tag on anything. Why? So that you can learn to be the same kind of givers that God is. That you freely do it because you really want to have the Word of God preached. You really want to be part of a body. You really want to, when God has blessed you beyond what you need, that you are, have a heart like He has to willingly and joyfully give. So that's our policy. All right? You, know, you say, how do I do that? Well, you know, this is the day of, of, of Internet and PayPal and all that. So we do have on our website, and then in the back we have a box. But we won't be looking at you as you go out. Oh, you walked right by that. What's wrong with him? If you have any questions today about the message of the gospel or anything else, I invite you to speak to me after service. I'm going to just be hanging out over there with the Bible in my hand. You'll know me because I have this suit on. That's the only person in Florida, I think, this one who has this. So it's just that you know, oh, that's the pastor. Okay. All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news that you've shared in your word that your Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, went to the cross and died for our sins, all of them, and that he was buried, and then on the third day he raised him from the dead, so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's by grace through faith. Father, we love that. It. It's just a gift, and it's just by believing good news, something a child can do. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for that amazing gift too of salvation. And we ask again that you would have us go out there and realize that we're nothing without you, but we have everything we need in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Hannah today is going to click, going to, uh, sing a closing song, and after that you'll be dismissed to enjoy the day.
Even when my eyes can't.